Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. We are continuing with our series on environmental racism. Hopefully we won't have another technical glitch. It seems that Blog Talk Radio is very persnickety about when you enter the conversation. Otherwise, they cut you off, indicating like you've had a whole show when you haven't. So we've got about one minute and 40 seconds left to go, and we're hoping. If we get cut off, I'm going to have to set it up again. Just bear with me. They say I'm on air, but they're also telling me I have 90 seconds to wait. I am really confused by this. So bear with me. Okay, I'm Janine Mollock. This is the Environmental Justice Report. If we get cut off, you know, technology can be a crazy thing. So we're going to hold on one minute and 12 seconds. Here's hoping. All right, we've had this issue before. 60 seconds. They're not even getting their timeline correct. We're supposed to start at 7. So anybody's listening, again, God only knows with what's going on with technology. And since this is live, I can't really edit it. So we're hoping that this works. That's what I'm saying. And then I don't get cut off in the middle of it because we have a really good show today. Something, a very important issue, uh, not only dealing with environmental racism, but also with the idea of our justice system, which we know has some major problems. Put Put bluntly, you get about as much justice in this country as you can afford to purchase, at least in terms of billable lawyer hours. So we're down to 24 seconds. Here's hoping. Um, you know, again, Black Talk Radio has an odd way of going. Uh, we're hoping. Hopefully I won't get cut off. With this, you never know. So I'm covering myself either way. Ten seconds. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, last off, I hope. Hello. We are on air. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. If you heard the little diatribe earlier, it's because we had a little issue with what uh, I'm thinking we're on air right now. It looks, this is a little confusing. Um, so I'm just going to keep going and hope that this works. Tonight we're doing our series, continuing it on environmental racism, and we're going to discuss the case of human rights and environmental rights attorney Stephen Donzinger. Now, for those of you who don't know who Mr. Donzinger is, he is actually one of the good guys, okay? Um, and I'm really worried that we actually, are we on air here? We are, okay, we're live. Okay, good. Just double-checking. So those of you who don't know who Stephen Donziger is, I'm going to fill you in. All right. He is the attorney who represented a bunch of indigenous peoples as well as peasant farmers in Ecuador, in the middle of the Amazon, in their quest for justice against fossil fuel giant Chevron. Uh, the case originally started with pollution that was caused by Texaco, then Chevron bought Texaco, and now Chevron's trying to ditch responsibility. Although with those type of, you know, those type of deals, basically you have you buy the pollution liability as well. So most of you never heard of an attorney named Stephen Donzinger, but you should have. He's a giant among environmental warriors. He's also the target of a smearing scheme conducted by none other than fossil fuel giant Chevron. Donziger is now fighting to regain his law license because he had just been unjustly disbarred. He's trying to 
basically regain all his worldly goods, his bank accounts, uh, basically lay claim to his apartment and so on, as well as avoid some jail time. Now, Donziger's crime, he not only dared to pursue justice, as I said before, for indigenous peoples and peasant farmers in Ecuador who had been irretrievably damaged, first by fossil fuel giant, the previous Texaco, and now by Chevron, but this guy actually won. This, deal de this deals with corporate environmental racism against indigenous peoples of the Amazon in Ecuador. And, and here's the story. So there was a headline in Salon, and it was this piece was written by, you know, Pulitzer Prize winner Chris Hedges, and the piece originally appeared on something called Sheer Post, and this was called the case of Stephen Donzinger and Chevron: How those who fight corporate tyranny are crushed. And a quote from Hedges' piece: "Quote: The persecution of the attorney Stephen Donzinger is a grim illustration." of what happens when we confront the real centers of power, masked and un unacknowledged by the divisive camps from the Trump White House or the sentimental drivel of the Democratic Party. Those like Donzinger who name and fight um, the corporate control of our society on behalf of the vulnerable see the judiciary, the press, and the institutions of government unite to crucify them. And just a word about the writer Chris Hedges. Hedges has, I believe, it's a, 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 a doctor of divinity degree from, I believe it's Yale. And his father was, I think, a Lutheran bishop. So he's not going to use the term crucify loosely. Now, Hedges based this piece on an interview that he conducted with Donziger over the phone. So let's kind of go through this. Who is Stephen Donziger? Well, as I said before, he's the attorney who not only represented a ferociously battled fossil fuel giant Chevron in an environmental justice case that took, I hope you're sitting down, 27 years to pursue. He represented indigenous communities and peasant farmers, as I said before, in Ecuador. Now, since Hedges published this piece, Donziger has been disbarred by the New York State Bar Association. He's currently under house arrest in Manhattan, and he's going to begin a trial in federal court in a few days, on September 9th. And this is for alleged contempt, criminal contempt of court charges, facing an additional six months in prison. So let's review Donziger's alleged crime. This guy won a multi-billion dollar judgment in 2011 against Chevron. Now for his efforts on behalf of those same indigenous groups, Chevron pledged to destroy him economically professionally and personally, according to Hedges' piece. Now, to quote from an internal memo in 2009 that was reviewed by and documented by Courthouse News, quote, our LT, meaning long-term strategy, is to demonize Donzinger, end quote. Okay, that says it right there. Demonize him? Not just fight him in court. They want to destroy this guy. This is a... a a warning. The first part of the story will focus on the litigation fallout suffered by Donziger and the criminal corruption of our dubious justice system, which more often than not favors those with the deepest pockets. And if you're not a billionaire like Elon Musk, that would mean corporate legal coffers. In short, most of us, we receive as much justice as we can afford. So let's look at this case from the present day and wind down to its origins. And then in another program, we're going to discuss the environmental damage that Chevron caused. Okay. 
Those they said before, John Zucker is facing jail on a criminal contempt charge. So how did this criminal contempt case happen? It doesn't usually happen to too many attorneys. Well, Donzinger was charged by the judge with criminal contempt because he refused to hand over confidential client files on his Chevron case. Now, according to Courthouse News, here is the timeline for this case in short. All right. 1993, New York attorneys filed lawsuit on behalf of indigenous and Campesino rainforest residents. Okay. These plaintiffs claimed that Texaco, I'm just, I'm just pulling straight from the article, that the Texaco polluted their jungle communities to the point that they were, quote, an oil-strewn disaster. Then Chevron acquired, in other words, bought Texaco, but at, with all those deals, when you buy a company like that, you're also acquiring the pollution liability and the lawsuit, unless there's another agreement that's part of the purchase, and apparently there wasn't. And legal battles over pollution liability spreading over three continents and multiple jurisdictions continue to rage. Now, you have to realize what's happened, what Texaco did. And when I say Texaco, now Chevron owns the pollution liability and knows all about it. So the Ecuadorian jungle, which is part of the Amazon rainforest, is riddled with toxic petroleum pools and no relief in sight. Environmental case migrated to Laga I'm hoping I'm saying this right, Lago Agrio, Ecuador. Now, there's an Ecuadorian judge that found Chevron liable and ordered a $9.8 billion judgment against Chevron in this case. Okay, so Donziger won. But Chevron, predictably, fired a countersuit in New York. It happens all the time. Furthermore, there was an internal memo from Chevron, and that was the one where they said their strategy is to demonize Donziger. Now, attorneys for Chevron, quote, accused Donziger of, get this, bribing a judge, ghostwriting the multi-billion dollar judgment against it, and cooking scientific studies, end quote. They're, they're counting on the fact that this guy is more talented than most of us. In 2014, there's two judges involved in this case. The main judge is U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan. And then there's another one, Judge Pesca. So we're going to talk about Lewis Kaplan first. In 2014, U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan called Donziger's conduct in this case, case quote, criminal. And he issued a 500-page ruling. And in the ruling, it's quoted by Courthouse News that the ruling, quote, affirming most of Chevron's allegations against him. That's unusual in and of itself. Now, the case is known as the United States of America v. Stephen Donziger. But here's the thing, the Southern District of New York prosecutors, okay, they refused to, as they say, take up the case. They wouldn't pursue criminal contempt court, criminal contempt charges against Donzinger. So this federal judge, quote, drafted criminal, quote, drafted criminal contempt charges and appointed private counsel, private law firm, to lead Donziger's prosecution on July 30th. This was the beginning. Again, this was reported also by Courthouse News. Now, as a result, Donziger at that point faced disbarment, prison, and possibly millions of dollars in attorney fees to Chevron's attorneys. Donziger claimed in a recent press release that, quote, the larger issue is that for years, Judge Kaplan has issued a series of pro-Chevron rulings from the bench 
that seemed designed to rescue a major American company from an adverse court ruling, end quote. And that's again from Courthouse News. Now, spokesman from Chevron, there's a lot of stuff here, so just try and follow along. There's a lot of quotes, too. Chevron spokesman at the time, a guy named Sean Comey, did confirm that Chevron didn't request the criminal contempt charges that were issued by Judge Kaplan. According to Comey, Judge Kaplan made that decision unilaterally. Comey did confirm that Chevron did file multiple motions for civil contempt, and Judge Kaplan granted those as well. Now, it's also, the second judge comes in, Judge Loretta Preska will preside over the criminal case, and there's more. Both of these judges appear to have very serious conflicts of interest that really should force them to recuse themselves, but neither one does. So Judge Prescott, let's give a little background here. She, Judge Loretta Preska was appointed by George H.W. Bush Sr. in 92. Judge Kaplan was appointed by Bill Clinton in 94. And Courthouse News did note that these two appointments surround the original filing of the Chevron case. So they're not making the accusation that both George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton wanted to make sure there were judges that would be sympathetic, but the timing of it does look a bit peculiar. Now for the six, not just one, six criminal contempt charges that Judge Kaplan fired, filed against Donzinger. Six of them. Two of these six criminal contempt charges are due to Donzinger, as I said before, refusing to not only turn, he refused to turn over his computer, his phones, and any other electronic devices to Chevron. And that's what the judge was trying to order. The judge Kaplan was ordering Donzinger to hand over all of his information to the opposition. Why did Chevron demand these devices? Okay, isn't that something inappropriate? Chevron's attorneys were searching Donzinger's assets to collect millions of dollars in attorney fees. So apparently Judge Kaplan was acting was helping to be a bill collector for Chevron's attorney. That's what it looks like to me anyway. Donzinger rightfully objected to these orders because he saw it as a dangerous intrusion on attorney-client privilege, and that's really an important point. All right, if you don't have attorney-client privilege, then defense attorneys have no way to defend their clients, right? It just interferes with everything, and it's, it's a dangerous precedent. So there was another criminal contempt count that was issued claiming that Donzinger disobeyed Kaplan's order to give up his passport as well, okay? And Donzinger didn't want to give up his passport because he needed to travel to Ecuador and Canada and some other countries to help consolidate support so he could help collect on the Lago Agrio judgment so it would benefit these indigenous peoples. So the remaining charges allege violations of Judge Kaplan's order blocking collection of the um, of these things against Chevron. All right. So Donziger stated at the recent hearing that he attend that he was going to contest these charges, which is his right. Okay. Donzinger was quoted saying, I will show up. I'm going to come with counsel. I'm assuming that I will get a jury trial. This is according to Courthouse News. Judge Preska alluded to a tough battle for Donzinger. She stated the charges appear to be, quote, very strong, end quote. That seems prejudicial to me, but I'm not a judge. Now the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, they've abstained from commenting publicly on Chevron's case. They failed to respond to a request from Courthouse News, which is seen throughout the legal community, 
her comment on what Courthouse News is calling the judge-appointed prosecution at the time that their article published. Now, Courthouse News did conduct a search of court records, and they found that the U.S. Attorney's Office in question told Judge Kaplan that contempt charges would, quote, require resources that we do not readily have available, end quote. And this is a judge-appointed prosecution. Now, judges aren't supposed to tell prosecutors what they're supposed to prosecute. Judges are supposed to act as referees. So this is highly unusual. And it, I don't know if it actually meets the consideration for um, judicial misconduct, but it seems like it's flirting dangerously close. So directly quoting from the courthouse news piece, quote, justifying his maneuver, Kaplan cited a clause of the federal rules of criminal procedure stating a judge must appoint another attorney if the government, that means prosecutors, declines to prosecute for contempt. In practice, however, the sequence of events is extraordinarily rare, end quote. The former prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office cited that the reluctance to prosecute on these contempt charges was a significant situation. Some of us, again, might interpret this reluctance to be a not-so-subtle sign that those attorneys want nothing to do with any part of judicial malfeasance. So let's talk about what some of these prosecutors thought, or former prosecutors, rather. So one former prosecutor is Ellie Honig, who spent over eight years in that particular prosecutor's office. Honig explained that criminal referrals by judges can make a legally awkward position for prosecutors. To quote Honig, quote, if the U.S. attorney charges a case, there will be at least an appearance that the prosecution aims to appease or curry favor from the judge. If the U.S. attorney declines, then there's concern over alienating that, the referring judge who will continue to preside over cases brought by the U.S. attorney, end quote. To me, this sounds like a convoluted description of criminal judicial behavior and abuse. Honig is now an attorney with the firm of Lowenstein Sandler. Another former prosecutor, Harry Sandick, who's now a Patterson Belknap partner, explained that a federal judge making a criminal referral is, quote, not an every day of the week occurrence. How many times did the, governors, did the government say no thanks? That's even a smaller number, end quote. So the pattern of career pro former prosecutors calling this action out is rare. You could interpret it as a polite way of accusing judicial misconduct without making the actual accusation. There was only one ex-prosecutor that responded who was able to provide an example of a similar case. Former U.S. Attorney Joyce Vance in Alabama recalled how that district refused a, just, a judge's criminal referral against uh, Attorney Richard Dickey Scruggs. The situation was very similar, near, almost identical. Scruggs was the attorney who won a $248 billion settlement against 13 tobacco companies. And the case that particular case and that settlement was the litigation that inspired the film The Insider, okay, with Russell Crowe. Scruggs went on to win cases in asbestos litigation and fraud claims against insurers that excluded flooding from hurricane, uh, flooding benefits from Hurricane Katrina victims. An Alabama judge in that case against Scruggs, again, similar to what Gonziger's going through, sounds like retaliation accused Scruggs of violating an order to return documents leaked by two whistleblowers in the Hurricane Katrina case. Once Vance's office refused to prosecute, then U.S. District Judge William Acker pushed criminal contempt charges against Scruggs. Those charges were dismissed in 2009, and should be noted Judge Acker is now deceased, but he was a Reagan appointee. 
So to quote Courthouse News, quote, like Don Singer, Scruggs was accused of bribery, and this is some of the other stuff he's been accused of, which sullied his reputation. Scruggs copped a guilty plea in a separate case to continue to file uh, to file a U.S. attorney to file by a U.S. attorney's office in Mississippi. I'm sorry. He copped a guilty plea in a separate case filed by a U.S. attorney's office in Mississippi, but he continued to dispute the charges following a five-year sentence. This situation is too close to comfort for comfort. In both cases, it appears the judges overstepped the boundaries of their offices. In short, you could say judicial misconduct or malfeasance. Now back to Don Ziger's criminal contempt trial, and he's really, they're throwing everything at him. The lead counsel prosecuting for the government, okay, the government appointed a, uh, basically a private law firm. The lead counsel prosecuting for the government is an attorney who is a partner with the firm that they assigned, Seward and Cassell, and her name's Rita Glavin, okay? Courthouse News spoke with five former prosecutors, and that included veterans from that Southern District of New York, as well as the Northern District of California, and they asked about any precedent for this judicial maneuver. And these prosecutors, again, have a combined experience of level of 70 years, but only one prosecutor could recall that one case in Alabama. So there's so many aspects of this case that are considered to be highly unorthodox, but one in particular that stood out to Courthouse News. That was Don Ziger's appearance in court, quote, had all the trappings of a typical bail hearing, end quote. Don Ziger wound up, after all this, under house arrest, and he was forced to produce an $800,000 bond, which his wife was required to co-sign. He was then fitted with a GPS-powered ankle bracelet, like he was already in jail. He then was permitted, he could remain in his apartment with his family, and all this was dictated by U.S. District Judge Loretta Presco, the one that was assigned by Judge Kaplan. Judge Presco then pronounced in front of the court that, quote, Counsel, I do agree that this is a new type of proceeding, and although Mr. Donzinger has appeared in the civil case, we are in a brave new world now, end quote. Little did Judge Preska realize the extreme irony of her statement. Looking back at Aldous Huxley's classic dystopian allegory, Brave New World, which was the precursor to Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984, the case of Chevron v. Donzinger fits the bill, at least in terms of what can only be called massive, oligarchic injustice. But keep in mind that Donzinger has been battling American oil companies for 27 years. So what happened in Ecuador? Let's talk about this, okay? Donziger explained to, again, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges, quote, it started when Texaco went into Ecuador and the Amazon in the 1960s and cut a sweetheart deal with the military government then ruling Ecuador. Over the next 25 years, Texaco was the exclusive operator of a very large area of the Amazon that had several oil fields within this area, 1,500 square miles. They drilled hundreds of wells. They created thousands of open-air, unlined, toxic waste pits where they dumped the heavy metals and toxins that came up from the ground when they drilled. They ran pipes from the pits into rivers and streams that local people relied on for their drinking water their fishing, and their sustenance poisoned this pristine ecosystem in which lived five indigenous peoples as well as a lot of other non-indigenous rural communities. This, there was a mass industrial poisoning, end quote. Very true. Donzinger further explained, quote, by the time I went down there in the early 1990s, 
Uh, many people had died. Cancer rates were skyrocketing. According to several independent health evaluations, people were really hurting. There was zero regard for the lives of the local people by Texaco. Keep in mind, this was Texaco that did this. Chevron bought Texaco and assumed the pollution liability. I was a very young lawyer back in 1993 when I first went to Ecuador. It was like looking at an apocalyptic scene. There was oil on the roads. People were living in abject poverty. They had no shoes. They would get oil in their feet when they walked along the roads. The oil pollution had permeated every aspect of daily life. It was in the food supply. It was in the water supply. It was in the air. The average person there would get exposed multiple times a day to very harmful cancer-causing toxins with foreseeable results. Quote, I with other lawyers filed a lawsuit in New York against Texaco. The reason we filed in New York was because Texaco's headquarters were in New York in 1993. The decisions to pollute in Ecuador, to play God to the people in Ecuador, were made in New York. We sued in New York. Texaco tried to get the case back to Ecuador where they had been held accountable, where they knew the indigenous peoples had no money or resources to find lawyers. They thought it would just go away. Over a 10-year period, we battled to get a jury trial in the United States. Ultimately, they won that part of the battle. It went down to Ecuador. Donziger continued, quote, we started working with a team of Ecuadorian lawyers in the early 2000s. We went forward with the lawsuit. We produced voluminous scientific and testimonial evidence showing that they caused probably the world's worst oil pollution. It was called the Amazon Chernobyl by locals and experts. They dumped 16 billion gallons of toxic waste. They did it deliberately to save money. I'll say it again. Mexico did it deliberately to save money. This was unlike the BP spill in the Gulf of Mexico, which was a terrible accident, even though it was a product of horrendous negligence by BP. This was done by design to pollute knowing that people would die and that indigenous groups would be decimated and that this beautiful part of the Amazon would be destroyed. Now, according to Hedgie's piece, this premeditated refusal to abide by the most minimal of environmental laws saved Texaco approximately $3 on each barrel of oil over a period of 26 years, from 1964 to 1992, and that amounted to basically an estimated $5 billion additional revenue. Now, that was according to Amazon Watch. Furthermore, the waste pits Texaco abandoned, which number in the hundreds, contained 200 times the allowable contamination levels according to global standards. Really something that is, it's vile. Donziger added, quote, they tried to grind us down using classic corporate defense tactics. They filed thousands of motions. We stood strong. We had a great team of Ecuadorian lawyers, end quote. Eventually, the Donziger team and the Ecuadorian attorneys won. Quote, the verdict came down about $18 billion in favor of the affected communities, which is what it would take at a minimum to clean up the actual damage and compensate the people for some of their injuries. That eventually got reduced on appeal in Ecuador to $9.5 billion, but it was affirmed by three appellate courts, including the highest court of Ecuador. It was affirmed again by the Canadian Supreme Court where the Ecuadorians went to enforce their judgment in, an, in a unanimous opinion in 2015, and that was from humanrights.org. And it was, it was reported in Business and Human Rights by the Business and Human Rights Resource Center, I stand corrected. So Chevron bought Texaco in 2000, but that's not all Chevron did. 
They sold the assets acquired from Texaco in the deal, and they left the mess in Ecuador as evidence kept accumulating. The Chevron's attorneys then threatened the plaintiffs, these desperately poor indigenous peoples, with, quote, a lifetime of litigation, end quote. So Chevron cited what they called multiple examples of judicial misconduct and misconduct by the plaintiff's attorneys, and that was in 2007. Chevron's attorneys moved to dismiss the Ecuador lawsuit and filed in an Ecuadorial Supreme Court. Kept going on. Donziger continued his fight. Now, some things about Donziger. I know we're kind of going all over the place, but this is, they made, Chevron's attorneys made this complicated by design. I do believe that. To make it harder to find out what really happened. So Donziger himself, is a, he started out as a journalist. He report, used to report for the United Press International in Managua during the Sandinista era. And then he went to law school. He's a graduate of the Harvard Law School, and he graduated in 91. And a law school classmate of his was from Ecuador. And that classmate's father organized a trip in 93 for attorneys and medical professionals to witness the contamination generated by the oil extraction industry in the Amazon. Donziger was hooked after that. He saw what was going on. And he knew this was a moral calling. After that, he made more than 250 trips to Ecuador over the next few decades. Donziger noted, quote, Chevron controlled the legal system in Ecuador with their influence. We needed to operate across different platforms, including engaging with the media and carrying out significant public education. Most Ecuadorians, other than those who lived in the region, knew nothing about the pollution that had been happening in their country. We carried out zealous advocacy in the public arena. We realized that the indigenous people would never get a fair trial in Ecuador. They did not illuminate what had happened to them and get public support. So ironically, Donziger recalled the judge overseeing Chevron's lawsuit against him for racketeering because he was hit with racketeering charges too. Claims that this type of activity is wrong, adding, quote, the irony is that what we were doing is what the big oil companies have always done. So this is the, the judge overseeing Chevron's lawsuit against Donzinger knew this was wrong, okay? And he went on, quote, the irony is that what we were doing is what the big oil companies have always done. They always operate in the public relations domain, lobbying Congress to pass legislation to extinguish various legal claims, meeting political leaders behind the scenes. They operate across every platform they can find to exercise their power. We were smart enough to meet them toe-to-toe wherever they were operating and neutralize their ability to undermine the fairness of the trade. That's how they operate. They try to control court systems. This is Don Zinger's memories, but he also, you know, I stand corrected, he also recalled that the judge overseeing this lawsuit against him knew this was wrong. And Don Zinger was explaining how corporations like, um, like Chevron control things. Chevron's claim that Donzinger was guilty of racketeering. This is interesting. Chevron left Ecuador and they went back to file a lawsuit in New York. And that's where the, the entire litigation originally began. And this was before Chevron filed for a change of venue to Ecuador. Chevron then sued Donzinger and they used a civil, quote, a civil courts portion of a federal law famous for breaking the New York mafia in the 1970s, the Racketeer Influence, Influence and Corrupt organizations after RICO. Donziger stated, quote, they sued me as a civil racketeer under a, re- usually RICO is for criminal actions, but apparently there is a civil statute. So 
So Donziger said, quote, they sued me as a civil racketeer under a civil RICO statute for $60 billion. This one attorney. That was the largest amount of money an American individual ever had been sued for. This began a 10-year campaign to demonize me by Chevron and by its judicial allies. Chevron then hired, get this, an estimated 2,000 attorneys from 60 law firms to go to conduct this action. And this is according to actual court documents. Chevron hired 2,000 attorneys from 60 law firms to go after this one attorney. Chevron then dropped the demand for financial damages several weeks before the RICO trial because that would have made a jury trial necessary. And apparently Chevron doesn't want a jury trial. Okay, documents would be produced, and they don't want the bad publicity. So Judge Louis A. Kaplan, who was mentioned earlier, who's on top of all this, his background. Judge Kaplan was a former attorney, guess what, for the tobacco industry. And he has had undisclosed investments in funds with Chevron Holdings. Now, that's according to Kaplan, Kaplan's financial disclosure statement. Kaplan decided the RICO case alone. Judge Kaplan actually believed or claimed to believe a witness that was produced by Chevron's legal team named Alberto Guerra. And Mr. Guerra stated that the verdict in Ecuador was, quote, a product of a bribe, so that Donziger got the good verdict, according to Guerra, by bribing officials. Judge Kaplan used Guerra's testimony as the primary evidence for the RICO charge against Donziger. Now, here's the problem for Kaplan. First of all, Guerra basically has no credibility. He's a former Ecuadorian judge who, quote, later admitted to an international tribunal that he had falsified his testimony. And that's according to an article in Vice.com. Guerrero was relocated also to the U.S. by Chevron for $2 million. Who bribed whom? And these conflicts didn't bother Judge Kaplan. He ruled that a $9.5 billion Lago Agrio judgment against Chevron by Ecuador's highest court was, quote, obtained by way, to fraud, by way of fraud and coercion, end quote. And that's from the Vice article. Kaplan decided that Donzinger, quote, committed mail fraud, engaged in coercion, and paid bribes in order to win judgment against Texaco, which Chevron bought in 2001, end quote, according to Vice. Now, according to Guerra's now admittedly perjured testimony, okay, Guerra's admitted he's perjured himself more than once. According to this quote, Guerra testified that he had struck a deal between the plaintiffs and the president judge, Nicholas Zambrano. Guerra would ghostwrite the verdict, Zambrano would sign it, and the two would share an alleged $500,000 in kickbacks from the plaintiffs. And that's, again, according to the Vice article. In Judge Kaplan's RICO case ruling, Kaplan said that, quote, the evidence leads to one conclusion. Guerra told the truth regarding the bribe and the essential case as to who wrote the judgment, end quote. Now, it needs to be noted that Judge Kaplan accepted Guerra's testimony with zero corroborating evidence to date that has been shared. Now, as of the writing of the Cited Vice article, which was October 26th in 2015, testimony given before an international tribunal released by the Ecuadorian government and also provided advice news, Guerra admitted that he perjured himself and no direct or corroborating evidence exists to support his testimony in Judge Kaplan's court. And this is in front of an international tribunal. He openly admitted it. 
Donziger and his legal team have alleged that Chevron has committed fraud and obstruction of justice. They claim that Chevron was willing to, quote, sabotage legal proceedings in Ecuador and the United States for any action seeking, quote, for any action seeking to hold the company accountable. And I quoted from just now in 2015, also quoted Chevron's attorney. And in this instance, Chevron's attorneys incredulously claimed the transcripts from Ecuador clear the company. These are the transcripts where Guerra admits he, you know, perjured himself. There's no, no evidence to back it up. Okay, Zanziger didn't bribe anybody. So a lawyer, oh no, I'm sorry, a spokesperson for Chevron in 2015 named Morgan Crinklaw um, made this really specious claim. Quote: These transcripts make clear that Chevron proved its case before the International Arbitration Tribunal. Crinklaw uh, added, quote, witness and expert testimony confirmed that the Ecuadorian judgment against Chevron was ghostwritten by Stephen Donzinger and his team and that the Ecuadorian government is responsible for any further remediation, end quote, or device. Now, when Crinklaw was confronted about Guerra's testimony, he deferred to the judge. It should be noted that Judge Kaplan wrote in his judgment that, quote, Guerra on many occasions has acted deceitfully and broken the law. But that does not necessarily mean that it should be disregarded wholesale, end quote, according to Vice. I don't know where Judge Kaplan gets his logic. If you have, a, if you're only witness to this alleged RICO case, alleged bribery, if you have no actual corroborating witness and your one wit corroborating evidence, that is, and your one witness admits to an international tribunal of his own free will that, oh, yeah, he perjured himself. What is Judge Kaplan looking for? It, it just it sounds as asinine as, you know, the dog ate my homework. So, furthermore, Donziger was never allowed a chance to present a viable defense. According to Donziger, quote, Kaplan wouldn't allow me to bring in any environmental evidence that the Ecuadorian courts had used to find Chevron liable. He wouldn't let me testify on my own behalf on direct. He allowed Chevron to use secret witnesses whose identities he wouldn't reveal to me. He tried to treat it like a national security kind of case to try to demonize me. Because Chevron's whole strategy is to demonize me as a way to distract attention from its environmental crimes in Ecuador. And Judge Kaplan, who knows all the tricks in the books because he used to work, for Brown and Williamson, which is, in other words, a tobacco company, when he was an attorney with a law firm of Paul Weiss, he knows the tobacco industry playbook that they used for years and years and continue to use and worked with Chevron lawyers at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher to implement them against me without a jury, and there was nothing I could do about it, end quote. Should note that Paul Weiss is a large law firm currently advising Chevron on a $13 billion purchase of another energy company. This was, as of, I believe, 2015. One of Donziger's attorneys, John Caker, said he felt, quote, like a goat tethered to a stake, end quote, as he fought against 160 of Chevron's attorneys. Caker dubbed Judge Kaplan's court proceedings as, quote, a Dickensian farce, end quote. I agree. So not only did Judge Kaplan block Donziger's ability to collect the Ecuadorian judgment, but he conducted a farce of a trial worthy of only of the Banana Republic, not in New York City. 
So Kaplan ruled in favor of Chevron, and then he ordered Donziger to hand over all his client communications in the case to Chevron. Now, this is the danger, dangerous precedent I was speaking about before, that Judge Kaplan pushed that a corporate vehemence could influence a judge to really eradicate a time attorney-client privilege. Now, Donziger appealed the case, and Kaplan's demand that he break attorney, uh, excuse me, Donziger appealed the case, and Kaplan's demand that he break attorney-client privilege. Multiple legal experts have called Kaplan's order out as illegal and unprecedented. While Donziger's appeal was pending, Kaplan then charged him with criminal contempt for defending his clients on said attorney-client privilege. If this is confusing to you? Believe me, it is that confusing. Since the U.S. Attorney's Office for New York refused to file criminal contempt charges, Judge Kaplan, again, used that rare judicial maneuver, he appointed a private law firm to act as prosecutor on those criminal contempt charges, and that firm was the firm of Seward and Kissel. Now, what Kaplan and Seward and Kissel failed to disclose is the dirty fact that Seward and Kissel has had Chevron as a client. Now, it's covered in the American Prospect by Walker Bragman and David Sirota in just this past July. This law firm has worked directly for Chevron, as quoted in the article. Quote, the government has taken the extraordinary step of giving prosecutorial power to a law firm that has worked for Chevron and is allowing that prosecutorial power to be aimed at Chevron's chief adversary, who has been under house arrest for 332 days, end quote. Now, according to the University of Pittsburgh environmental law professor Joshua Galperin, quote, legal ethics rules are complex. One overarching principle is avoiding not just actual impropriety, but also the impression of impropriety that might cause the public to lose trust in the legal profession. And Galperin added that appointing Seward and Kissel certainly raises serious questions in that regard, end quote. And it does. All right? You've got a case of your... Hello, Fox. Meet Hen House. Enjoy. But Judge Kaplan appointed another judge, Loretta Prescott, to preside over that part of the case. Now, Judge Prescott is a member of the Federalist Society. Okay, so what? More troubling, though, she, quote, she's the judge who, quote, recently ordered an alleged victim of Jeffrey Epstein to destroy files on the convicted sex offender, end quote. And that is according to uh, a publication called lawandcrime.com. Judge Preska has demonstrated corporate fealty before. Back in 2013, she imposed a sentence of 10 years, which is the maximum allowed on a plea deal, on Jeremy Hammond. And Hammond is the hacktivist who hacked Stratford private security. Her conflict of interest came out as it was discovered that her husband, Thomas Cavalier, who's a partner at Cahill, Gordon, and Rindell, had his email address and password exposed in the hack. In spite of this conflict of interest, Preska refused to recuse herself, according to Salon. Judge Kaplan had Judge Preska require Donziger then to post that absurd $800,000 bond for a misdemeanor, a misdemeanor charge. That same misdemeanor charge, she placed him under house arrest, confiscated his passport, knowing that without his passport, his ability to enforce the judgment against Chevron would be seriously impaired because he couldn't travel to these places. Kaplan was able also to get Donziger disbarred. Kaplan allowed Chevron to freeze Donziger's bank accounts and added millions in fines without allowing him a jury trial. Kaplan allowed Chevron to impose a lien on Donziger's apartment, even though he still lives there with his, his child and wife. Additionally, Kaplan selected Seward and Cassell in August of 2019. 
Seward partner, Rita Glavin, is acting as prosecutor, and she told the court, I guess with a straight face, that, quote, determine no conflict of interest in prosecuting the Donziger contempt case, end quote. And that's according to the New York Law Journal. We've got some more problems with this being probably illegal, but also highly unethical. Hofstra University law professor and Ellen Yaroshevsky, who was also a former commissioner of the New York, New York State Joint Commission on Public Ethics, wrote an, in an affidavit submitted by Donziger's team the following, quote, the firm's interests are so aligned with Chevron such as to create a financial conflict of interest. It is an understatement to say that there is a potential and opportunity for bias by Seward's lawyers. It is equally an understatement to say that Seward counsel in the special prosecutor role undermines public trust and confidence in the perception of fairness of the legal system. The facts demonstrate a disqualifying co conflict of interest under any objective study. I'm sorry, under any objective standard, end quote. Seward and Castell dismissed the concern as trivial, yet the firm has refused to disclose the billing records for the three lawyers prosecuting Donziger. Are they still billing for Chevron? That's another conflict. Just this past May, Judge Prescott allowed Seward and Castell to continue their case against Donziger. In response, 29 Nobel, Nobel laureates wrote an open letter about this miscarriage of justice. Quote, in recent years, multifaceted attacks against environmental defenders have grown. These include physical assaults and murder, defamation campaigns, digital security threats, and corporate abuse in the judicial system. One of the most egregious cases of judicial harassment and defamation involves Chevron's legal assault on Stephen Donzinger and his Ecuadorian colleagues. Furthermore, Natalie Segovia of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers said the following regarding the Donziger case, quote, around the world, human rights defenders on indigenous people's rights and environmental justice are often killed for their work. As human rights attorneys working in conflict zones and other areas of the world, we often expect and assume those inherent risks involved in the work we do. But in the United States, a nation where we pride ourselves on holding the moral high ground since World War II, we do not expect retaliation of the type Mr. Donzinger has endured for over a decade, end quote. Now, Stephen Donzinger's contempt trial, his criminal contempt trial, that is, is scheduled for September 9th, so not too far from here. He's been he has been denied the right to a jury trial. Judge Fresco will preside. So we have about 15 minutes left, and hopefully this show actually did go on air. Again, we're having some issues at Blog Talk Radio. But from the start, this case of Stephen Donzinger versus Chevron has a stench of not just criminality, egregious injustice. It is particularly terrifying that any attorney has been punished and abused to this level for defending his clients. And again, Donziger's crime appears to be he defended communities of color against a big Western corporate fossil fuel conglomerate, period. That's it. I, I guarantee you that if this had happened 
States, in London, Paris, you name it, New York City, there would be hell to pay. Because this happened to indigenous communities, peasant farmers, in other words, communities of color that are all very poor and in an area where their access to justice is quite limited, along with access to just basic needs of clean water and clean air, this corporate conglomerate, first Texaco and then Chevron, decided it was just open season on these people, period. Now, when you add that moral indignation, that, that crime of, it really is a crime against humanity, all right? Again, these people have been poisoned. These unlined pits of toxic waste were just left into the groundwater that these people in, in that part of Ecuador, that's where they received their drinking water, right? It wasn't safe. We know that the byproducts of the oil industry, when they're dumped in those pits after it's you know dug up, contain multiple known and proven carcinogens. It's not rocket science. But instead, they go after the attorney, and, and this is what is truly frightening. And then when you look at two judges who not only appear to have a major, each a major conflict of interest, but they've actually violated the rules of court conduct. Mr. Donzinger had a right to a trial by jury. The judge had no right to tell him to deny him that. But they could, let's face it, Chevron could not risk a jury trial because then all this evidence would have come out. And they don't want that. They're, basically, they are, I guess you could say they're doing a Trump, in my opinion, for throwing dirt at somebody who is trying to do the right thing. Hopefully that people will just believe it. Um, you know, once again, the idea that they were going to basically disapprove of attorney-client privilege, which has existed since ancient Rome, you know, that's a very dangerous precedent. If that's allowed to stand, it means the next time that there is a case against a corporate polluter, for instance, and their attorneys decide to basically say, no, you can't have attorney-client privilege. Not only can that defense attorney not be able to conduct the case properly, but witnesses will disappear out of fear of retaliation. This is something that is incredibly dangerous. And the next time we discuss this, we're going to be talking about more about what kinds of injuries Texaco and then by default Chevron caused in these people. All right? I mean, this is something that... You know, Don Bigger's right. This was a mass industrial poisoning, and to call it an Amazon Chernobyl is not an understatement at all. No, it is pretty accurate. Um, and and yet, this it's been covered in some papers, and mainly the newspapers, not so much in the uh, broadcast media, and then it disappears, and it's just gone. There's so many problems with this case. Uh, why any judge would task a private law firm with becoming a prosecutor, I'll never know. Prosecutors should be public employees, okay? They should have no actual bias one way or another. 
So to hire a private law firm who claims, oh, we can make sure that we're playing by the rules, that's absurd. And that particular law firm has done business with Chevron. And then the kicker. You have Mr. Guerra. Here he admitted to an international tribunal that he perjured. He perjured himself massively. And this is the one piece, the one testimony that Judge Kaplan is hinging Don Tigger's prosecution on. There is no corroborating evidence that's been presented at all. And yet Judge Kaplan and Judge Pesca still go ahead with this. Judge Prescott, excuse me. You know that there's something crooked going on when prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office don't want to comply. They don't want to touch it because they know it's not just inappropriate, it's illegal. They don't want to lose their law license. And once again, this is about big money. In a nutshell, you know, here in St. Louis, we've had a similar instance and it's finally getting moved, but the Westlake landfills where there's basically um, radioactive waste that's been illegally dumped. And the companies that owned it before sold, and it was bought up by fossil fuel giant Exelon, based in Chicago. And Exelon also bought the pollution liability, which means they're going to have the legal responsibility from that point on. Has Exelon actually faced any of their liability? No, they have not. Instead, the EPA is finally going to move the stuff. Finally. But it's going to be at the cost to taxpayers, not to the criminals that dumped it in the first place. And that's the whole thing. We have a system, as I said before, where you get as much justice in this country as you can afford, period. And it's a joke. And corporate attorneys, corporate law firms don't even actually have to be good at what they do. They just have to have deep enough pockets and enough billable hours that they can file constantly, whether it's a continuance or another challenge or whatever. And they basically wait the clock out so that the opposition can't afford to continue, and then they allegedly win by default. That's it. That's not justice. That's denial of justice. And this is something where this isn't just about whether or not, you know, your neighbor hits your garage door. This is about whether or not people in this part of Ecuador are allowed to have, have uh, clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, and, and not live in a toxic cesspool where their, their uh, chance of contracting cancer is highly escalated and unnecessarily so. That's what we're dealing with here. Stephen Donzinger was, that was the person they were going to go after. He won that big, uh, that big award for his clients without any big money. And Chevron, and not just Chevron, most of these multinational large corporations, they can't allow that to stand. Because then they're vulnerable. They keep winning by basically intimidating everybody and threatening to throw everything at them. And the fact is, not only can we not have crooked attorneys, such as, in my opinion, the firm of Seward and Cattell, we can't have what appear to be compromised 
judges, such as Judge Kaplan and Judge Preska. I, I do not understand why these two judges are not facing criminal malfeasance charges right now. They should be. And for Judge Kaplan to sit there and say, we shouldn't wholesale object to what Mr. Guerra says, even though Judge Kaplan admitted that this man is a proven liar. He, he's, he's committed many crimes, and yet we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't just throw out his entire, his entire testimony, according to Judge Kaplan. Where does it stop? Seriously. There, there's something that needs to happen here. Perhaps federal judges should not have a lifetime position. Okay. When are we going to not only hold police accountable, but hold justices, hold judges accountable? Who polices them? This idea that professional organizations police themselves is ludicrous. Again, a case of a fox not only meeting a hen house, they say, here, enjoy. We can't have this anymore. We just can't. Everything about this is absolutely vile. I, I, I read this and I couldn't believe what I was reading. And this is something where here Mr. Donzinger is a graduate of the Harvard Law School. And if he gets treated this way, what chance do any of us have? No, we need to reform our justice system. And federal judges need to be held accountable. And federal judges should not have lifetime positions. Just like qualified immunity for police officers and office holders, we need to make sure that everybody is actually in alignment with the law and that there is no privilege for anyone. And that's going to take some doing. So once again, I have a little prayer for Stephen Donzinger. God bless him. And uh, I'm hoping in the near future, if he's not sent to jail, that I can actually interview him. I'd love to interview the man. This man is a giant. All right. This is, I'll tell you, these are, these are U.S. US federal judges, but they're acting like, if you remember the old series, um, Dukes of Hazard, just as ludicrous as Boss Hogg. They have made a mockery out of justice. And both of those both of those judges should be criminally investigated. The firm of uh, Seward and Kissel should be criminally investigated. Because this is this cannot be allowed to stand. So this was the environmental justice report with me, Janine Moloff. And hopefully it actually went through. Um, we've been having some technical issues at Blog Talk Radio, and we're going to continue with this. Next time, we're in future, we're going to probably deal with what were these specific environmental crimes committed by Texaco and then, you know, basically owned by Chevron because the people that have been hurt deserve to receive justice and healing and the people that committed these crimes deserve a jail cell for a very long time. So at this point, I'm going to end this show. We have a few more minutes. And I will say God bless Stephen Donzinger. And um, hopefully you will join us again next week 
on Thursday evening, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. So goodbye. This is the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Moloff. Have a great evening.